0: Welcome to the successful athletes podcast presented by trainer road, where we interview successful athletes to make you faster. And today we have a special episode with a trainer road user, Cam Summerson. How are you doing, Cam? I'm good, man. How's it going? Going great. We're going to take a bit of a different approach. You are, so you are episode four of this podcast. Uh, you have not set an Everesting world record that I know of. Have you set one since I have, we spoke last? I have not, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um, and uh, this isn't one necessarily about a specific race result, but success has very different measures and different ways to be able to define that success. And you actually shared this story with us uh, some time ago, and, and it struck us as something that really defined like a true measure of success, at least in my perspective. And, and as soon as we yeah, were organizing this podcast, you've been on the list since the beginning. So it's really exciting to have you on, man. And I appreciate you doing it. Uh, first things first, can you just introduce yourself uh, really quick, like basic stuff, where you're from, what you do for work, how old you are, and of yeah, course, certainly. since we're cycling nerds, weight and FTP too, so that we can <laughs> get a good context.
1: <laughs> yeah, my name's Cameron, uh, Cameron Summerson. Everybody just calls me Cam. I live in Texarkana, Arkansas. Uh, I work remotely, so I'm the editor-in-chief of a website called Review Geek. Uh, we, we're a tech website. Uh, I try to get as much bike stuff on there as I can, but it's, you know, you got to cater to the audience. But uh, yeah, so um, I'm 38. I weigh 145, and uh, FTP currently is 216, so
0: I'm 3.2-ish watts per kg. Awesome. Perfect. Good, good background for, especially for this podcast, right? It's a slightly different one. Um, so what we're going to talk about today with you, I think really revolves around motivation. And that's a key thing for all of us that are athletes that are training is to align with the motivation that really connects with each of us and is sufficient to drive us even through the tough times. And, uh, Cam, uh, in, in your situation, It's probably best just to jump right in and explain uh, your son, uh, Axton or Axe, explain his situation is probably the best place to start.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, just to get straight to it, he was diagnosed with end-stage renal disease, kidney failure, um, when he was three years old. So it was actually uh, exactly two months before his third birthday. So um, he he was right at three years old. It was the day after Christmas. He was diagnosed, uh, is when we first took him to the hospital, he was diagnosed with ESRD. Uh, he had maybe 10% kidney function at that time. And within two weeks it was gone. Um, so it had, it had been, he had zero kidney function at that point and it had been, this has been something that had been going on for a long time and we had no idea. So, um, at that point he had to go on dialysis and we were told right then that he would need a kidney transplant. And we knew that was something we were going to have to look forward, uh, look, look toward, but he was so small. Uh, we had, we had about, well, we had some time, uh, to get him up to the point where he could accept, uh, accept a a transplant. So that, that's pretty much where my story gets,
0: gets serious. Um, before that it's yeah. Go ahead. So was he uh in, in this case with and and uh, perhaps like a, a name for the condition that that he really had like you said a renal disease but you had mentioned fsgs is is a way to kind of uh summarize it as well or, a, yeah. or another way to to be able to explain it, it yeah
1: was that, this, that was, a- was this,
0: sorry was this a fatal condition as well uh like you know for him
1: Yeah. I mean, if they, they literally told us the day that we took him in, that if we would have waited 24 more hours to bring him in, he probably wouldn't have made it. Um, so we were, he was that close. He was that close to, uh, to not being with us anymore. Uh, and that was hard to hear, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's FSGS was his, was his official, um, diagnosis. And basically what that is is scarring of the kidneys. So the body sort of attacks the kidneys am people with this disease and scars them to the point where they no longer function. And that's, mm. that's what happened to him. It was, is literally a, uh, a fluke. It's a one in, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but it's, it's like a one in a million chance um, of it, of it happening. They said we could have a hundred thousand more kids
0: and it would probably never happen again. What signs did you see that this was the case with him? And when did you start seeing them?
1: So it's interesting because he was, so when, Actually, it goes all the way back to when he was born, um, because he was born with a skin tag right beside his ear. And the ears and kidneys are formed at the same time and in, uh, in the womb. And they checked his kidneys at birth because of that skin tag, and they said, no, everything looks good. They did an ultrasound, everything functioned, everything was fine. Uh, but he was always uh, really small. And I'm only 5'6", my wife is 5'4", so we're both pretty small, so we expect to have a small, a small child. Um, but it got to the point where I would say we really started to notice, maybe around 2 years old, that he wasn't really growing well. So we took him, to, uh, took him to a doctor, and they suspected that he might have a gluten intolerance. So we put him on a gluten-free diet, and within a few months of that, he started to gain weight. And we thought that that was a sign that the gluten-free diet was working, but actually his kidney function was declining and he was holding on to fluid. So all the weight he had gained was, was artificial. It wasn't real weight. It was, it was literally fluid buildup in his body. Um, and he would wake up, the first signs that we saw were he would have real like bags under his eyes. And we, again, the doctor, we worked with the doctor and they said it was probably allergies. Again, that sounds pretty logical to me, but it, that was the first sign of the fluid retention. Um, and it really came, really got to the point where we knew something was bad wrong in Christmas of uh, 2014. Because it, at Christmas, he he got the flu and he was literally, he was, he was just so sick. He was on... Uh, on the couch he wouldn't get up to come open gifts nothing and my wife noticed that he had uh, like his legs looked swollen and she got she did some research to find out what that could be and it she came across something called nephrotic syndrome and the next day it was it was even worse so i took him to the er and uh, it was just a small er we lived in rockwall texas at the time i took him to a small er they looked they checked him for edema and the doctor looked at me and he said, here's what I need you to do. He's like, I need you to put him back in your car and drive him to the children's hospital in Dallas. I'm not going to charge you for this visit, but I need you to do this right now. And if you don't think that you're capable of doing that, I'm going to call an ambulance and have them take you. Hmm. So I knew something was really wrong uh, at that point. And we, we spent the night, we, we got to the hospital about 7 p.m., uh, they did some tests. They um, put a catheter in to try to get a urine sample, and his bladder was completely dry. Um, he was very dehydrated from fever, and we had no idea. I mean, we'd been giving him water, but his his bladder was dry because his kidneys just basically were at, I mean, at barely basically the minimum function to still have function. Um, and literally, we got the results of that back at like midnight, and by 7 a.m. the next morning... He was in surgery to get a hemodialysis catheter straight into his heart and by 9 a.m. he was on dialysis uh the next day. So, so it was
0: Yeah. That, that was extremely so rapid. I can't having a three year old son, uh that's pretty terrifying to to hear yeah. this. Did what what was his condition like when he was on dialysis? Like um what what was what were things like for him? So um so he
1: started off on hemodialysis, like I, like I just said, which is basically what people think of when they think of dialysis. Most older people get it, and it's in their arm. Um, but with a child that small, it was straight into his heart. So basically, they pull the blood out, pull off the excess fluid, put the blood back. Uh, it, was, it was really, really hard on him at first um, just because a child that small, they literally have to pull so much blood out of the body at one time and then put it back in. So it was it was hard on him. And it took them probably two months to get all the excess fluid pulled off because they have to pull it off slowly. Um, and when they did, he was basically skin and bone. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. He was so weak he couldn't, he could barely stand on his own. By the time we were in the hospital with when he was first diagnosed, we were in the hospital for um, about three weeks. And then they let us go home, and we had to come back four times a week uh, for dialysis. But by the time they got all the fluid pulled off yeah he was skin and bone he had lost I mean he was I can't even remember exactly how much he weighed but it was he was very very frail um and so weak he could barely stand on his own so it was yeah yeah, it was man it was it was hard it was really hard and I remember looking at him and thinking like is he ever going to be the same again because he he was so tired he never wanted to play I mean dialysis is hard on on adults So what it does to a child is just, it's, it's, but he's, you know, it's like, I know we're talking about motivation and, and to me, that's, that's the crazy thing about it is like, I, I've talked to several adults who were on dialysis to try to understand like what he might be going through. And I watched videos and, and, uh, interviews of, of adults on dialysis and they were all talking about how hard it was, but with him, he never complained. All I ever saw out of him was, regardless of how weak he was, he still tried to, he wanted to play. He wanted to be on his tablet. He wanted to, he wanted to do things that he did before. And that will, that push to just be normal was just, it was unreal. You know, it was, it was so, so powerful to me um, to watch him just strive to be himself even though, I mean, it was, it was really, it was really, really hard on him. Um, and after three months of on hemo, they, they said, Hey, you have the option of switching him over to peritoneal dialysis, which can be done at home. It's much longer sessions, but, and you do it every night, but it can be done at home and it's easier on the body. And we were like, that sounds like a win-win. So we switched over. He was on dialysis for 12 hours a night. Um, wow. And we did it. It was, it was overnight completely. And we, we, we did it at home and he did, he did much, much better on that. It's, it's, you deal with cramping a lot with that. Um, because again, it's like, it'll, it'll pull all the fluid off the body. Um, even fluid, it shouldn't pull off the body gets pulled off. So you have to make sure that trying to find that right water balance, like you can't, he has to have water, but he can't have too much water. Um, and then diet was a diet restrictions. Those were, you know, it was all things we had to consider, um, but the peritoneal dialysis was, that was actually great for him. And he, he did really, really well on that.
0: Hmm. So that was 12 hours a night. And mm-hmm. would he be able to sleep through that time? Yeah. Just fine. Yeah. But still, yeah, he's, I imagine uncomfortable, just the same.
1: Yeah. So peritoneal, basically, it's like the in, inside, behind the stomach, there's a peritoneal cavity. And it would, it's, it's I don't even understand how people figure this stuff out because it's fascinating <laughs> to me. But like, so basically... There's a there was a tube that went into uh, went into past his stomach into this cavity and it the machine then the the, uh, the dialysis machine fills that cavity with peritoneal with this fluid that pulls through pulls liquid through the peritoneal cavity and then it's flushed back out. It's crazy. It's the craziest yeah. thing. Like it's just so. So bizarre to me how somebody even figured out how to do this. Um, so, yeah, but it, it, like you said, it is it is uncomfortable because he's filled with just a lot of fluid. So it's like if you, mm. you know, if you think about if you eat too much or if you drink too much and you just feel really, really full, I imagine that's how he felt. Um, and then when the fluid would come off every night, he would wake up because it would it's like it fills and then it sits for like an hour, hour and a half and then drains back off and does it all over again for 12 straight hours. Um, and every time it would drain back off, he would cramp. so he would wake up uncomfortable crying because he was cramping, um, and then he'd be fine once the fluid was was put back in place. so yeah it's it's definitely not ideal, but it was it was a lot easier on his body than uh, uh, than
0: hemo was. How long-term of a solution was that for him?
1: So peritoneal uh, dialysis, it's easier on the body, but it's still not a permanent solution for anyone on it because what happens over time is that peritoneal cavity breaks down, or the peritoneal wall, uh, rather. It starts to break down. The more you use it, the more it breaks down. So it's it's a longer-term solution, but for someone his age, it's not something that could have sustained him through his life you know, a kidney transplant is the only, was the only solution. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where if he ever has to go back on dialysis, um, hopefully that, that peritoneal wall, uh, will be healed enough. So he'll be able to go back
0: on, on PD without any issues. So when did, when did you guys make a decision to continue like the treatment beyond PD and to start to look at other options and what brought Uh, that about? So the transplant option, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so when we were first in the hospital,
1: I I mean, it was so they did a biopsy after we were there for three days to figure out if this was acute or if this was chronic kidney failure. Um, Because interestingly, I've never heard of this, but there are certain illnesses like strep throat that can cause acute kidney failure in children. Um, And then once that's gone, then the kidney failure will come back up. So uh, they did a biopsy and, and concluded it was chronic. And when they came to talk to us about that and tell us that it was chronic, they said he he'll need a kidney transplant, and I said he can have one of mine. I mean, it was there was just no question he can have one of mine. And um, you know, the they my wife and I talked about it shortly after that, and and we both decided that yeah, I mean, it just made the most sense for me to be the one because she couldn't take care of like if she were to do it, I can't work and take care of her and take care of him all at the same time. And uh my wife at the time when Axe was diagnosed, she worked. But pretty much as soon as he was diagnosed, she was like, I'm not going back to work. That's her her sole focus is him. So she she has been mother, teacher, nurse since I mean really since day one. But like once that that's that's when she really stepped up. So um and and I'm the only one who who works outside the home. I mean, I work from home, but you know, Um, so it just made more sense, you know, plus it's, you know, it just made more sense. And my mom helped a lot. So basically, Corey stayed, that's my wife. She stayed with Axe when he was in the hospital after transplant. And I stayed with my mom and my mom took care of me because I could barely walk on my own. So uh, it, it really just made sense. But yeah, I mean, that was a conversation that we had and it was, it was pretty much a no brainer. I would go first. And then if I wasn't a match, then she would be tested.
0: So what, what did you have to do to become a donor? Because that, I mean, it, it's a noble thing and also an understandable thing for a father to say yeah. whatever I can do. Um, but what was the response from the medical team and what, what sort of things did you have to go through in order for that to happen?
1: So I'm going to, I'm going to back up just a little bit to before Axe was diagnosed. Um, to basically the start of when I started riding bikes, because I was 210 pounds uh, when I started riding. And like I said earlier, I'm 145 today. date. So um, I was overweight, like very overweight. Like I said, I'm 5'6". So I knew something had to be done. And um, I got a bike and I started riding. And then I started to watch what I ate more. And I was down to, I think I was down to like one probably around 170 when Axe was first diagnosed. I don't remember exactly, but, uh, and then by the time we were out of the hospital, I was down to 155 because I just literally didn't eat for Mm. three weeks. Um, But then after we got home and things started to settle in, then the stress eating started and I put a bunch of weight back on. So I was back up to like 180. Um, But then, you know, the more we thought about me being, the more I thought about me being the, uh, the donor, the potential donor, uh, before any testing started, I knew that I had to get myself back into, or get myself into shape, uh, and that's really when I I really started taking things seriously to get in to get in the best shape that I've ever been in, uh, and so I started at one eighty, and then uh, I worked my way down to like one, I think it was about one sixty or so uh, by the year he was going to get transplanted. So he got transplanted in October of. Oh man, my, my years run together. October of 2017 is when he, uh, when he got transplanted. So it'll be three years this year. So at the beginning of 2017, I was about 160, 165. And I knew that that we knew that was the year. Um, and that's when I was also going to start going through all the testing to be compatible because they won't test anybody until we're like within a few months of transplant, because it's interestingly, people can be a match and then they can no longer be a match. Um, it's, it's really weird. Cause it's more than just blood type, like blood type is obviously one of the, one of the key things, but they're, they're, oh man, I had to go through so many tests, so many tests, but I knew, um, if your BMI is too high, they won't let you be a donor. If your blood pressure is high, they won't let you be a donor. So I knew I had to be in good shape. Uh, and that, uh, that's when I started using trainer road and really taking riding seriously. Cause before that I was just, I was a very casual cyclist. It was like, oh, I just want to ride bikes and lose weight. Um, and then I was like, okay, now it's time to start doing, it's it's time to start doing more, uh, started using trainer road, which man, I, I think about this all the time, but that first, like the base phase, Mm -hmm. literally life-changing. I mean, literally life-changing more than just getting me in better shape. I lost a ton of weight just doing the base phase. And it made me so much stronger, um, that I was always one of the slowest guys in the group that I rode with after the base phase, I was, it was, I was no longer the slowest guy. It was the one setting the pace. So, um, that was, I mean, it was, it was seriously, seriously game changing. And then of course, because I was faster, I rode more, burned off more calories. I mean, it was just, it just, you know, it just snowballed in the best possible way from there And, uh, and even though it was just like, when I look at the big picture, that 12 weeks is relatively a short time over the whole time I was losing weight. It was the most significant by far, Mm -hmm. the most meaningful portion of anything that I did, uh, to get
0: read, uh, get ready for, for transplant. So go ahead. I was just going to say, stepping back. So you had to be a healthy individual and go through all of that. And the motivation for that, I mean... I can't imagine it's for a lot of us, you know, geez, like, you know, not to make light of all of our individual situations here, but a lot of the time we're just shooting for a result that isn't even going to get us like a blue ribbon, you know, Yeah, (laughs) but it's enough to, it's, it's, it's enough to motivate us perhaps, you know, but maybe not on all the days. What was it like approaching training with that sort of thing, riding with other people that are cyclists that are probably who knows what their goals are, but your goal was to, to literally save your son's life.
1: Yeah, so it's the the motivation that can be pulled from that um is it's unlike anything that I think I can really put into words because you know, you get in the middle of a hard interval or you're on a uh, you know, you're you feel like you're uh, on a hard group ride or a race or whatever and you feel like your heart rate is redline and you can't go any harder and you just want to quit. But then for me, I I think about this this, this child who is, I mean, he was, you know, four years old, five years old, almost five at the time. And just the, the most inspiring person I've ever known in my life, because, you know, going back to what I said earlier, the motivation for him to try to get back to normal to, you know, I can remember he could barely move and I was laying beside him and I had my, his tablet right after he was diagnosed, I had his tablet leaned up on my shirt or on my chest. And he was, all he could do was move his arm. But that's what he, like he, he had that will, that drive to not give up. And that was so motivating to me. And I thought about every time I wanted to give up, I would think about everything he'd been through and think about just watching him overcome every obstacle that was put in front of him. And there's nothing more motivating. There's nothing more motivating. Like he's just, I mean, he's honestly, you know, people say that uh, I've had so many people be like, oh, you're, you know, you're a hero or you saved his life. But I mean, honestly, you know, he's my hero. Like he's just so, so motivating. I couldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where, like, I wouldn't be who I am, honestly, without, without the experience and without his inspiration in my life.
0: Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, what were the challenges you faced when you were training like this? You mentioned that. You had lost weight, but then you had rapid weight gain, and then coming yeah. back into it. What was hard uh, in the beginning of the the training s- the process when you got started?
1: Life stress more than anything else. I mean, you can you can imagine how stressful it is to have a chronically ill child, and, and um you you know every day, every single day is a new issue. So it's like when I tell the story, a lot of times I tell it, you know in very broad strokes. It's like, Oh, well this happened then this other big event happened then this third big event happened. But the nuances from day to day, um, the things that happen, you know, every single day with, you know, maybe his blood pressure is high or maybe his blood pressure is low, or maybe he, we think he's coming down with something or, you know, his test results aren't right. I mean, every single, literally every single day, it was something new. So all those stresses built up, you know, and, and I know you guys talk about this on the Trainer Road podcast, the main the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast all the time, but life stress makes training hard. And, uh, and that was probably, that was the biggest thing. But at the same time, I also use that life stress as a motivator because it was like, how do I make this situation better? By being stronger right now, by getting stronger right now, getting in the best shape of my life and helping fix this. Hmm. So yeah, that, but that was, that was by far, by
0: far the biggest, uh, the biggest hurdle was, was all the stress. Did you have to make changes to your training as a result of that? Like, were there days where you had to make adjustments or what sort of volume did you train on? And how did you, how did you manage that
1: one yeah, bad definitely. day to another? Definitely, it was. You know, there were like, if I knew that uh, he had, he he would go, he would see his nephrologist um, once a month when he was on dialysis. We'd meet with his dialysis team, uh, meet with his nephrologist, and on those days when I knew that was coming, um, I would like, I would you know, get up and train early in the morning because we were going to be at the hospital pretty much all day and stuff. And there were there were weeks where, you know we would be admitted to the hospital. If one of his levels was, was off, they would admit us immediately. And then at that point, I would know I was going to miss at least a week's worth of training because we were going to be in the hospital the whole time. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely, there were, there were ebbs and flows. Um, no, no question about it where I would have to adjust, uh, adjust things and, you know, take every single day as, as it comes. And, uh, and, and get the training in where I could. Sometimes it was late at night, you know, sometimes it would be 9 PM before I was even getting on a
0: trainer. Um, but that's, you know, that, that's just, that's just what it was. Did you ever find, so sometimes we have a goal and it's so, um, it means so much to us. And in this case, absolutely. It means everything. Yeah. Uh, that it gets, it can be kind of difficult to manage things at times, if that makes sense. And I guess what I'm getting at here is, uh, was it, Were there any difficulties that came with having a true life or death situation as your motivation? Uh, Did that compromise your training at all? Did you find yourself making mistakes, I would say, or pushing yourself too far? or Did you ever find yourself in a situation like that? Or did you, like you said, just kind of march along and manage it well?
1: I pretty much just marched along with it. And I'm sure like looking back on it now, um, I have a totally different perspective on training and how I should go about it than I did then. Um, I'm sure that there were definitely days when I overreached and uh, didn't manage the fatigue or whatever as well as I should have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was the, the never give up, the don't let it beat me mentality that just really pushed me, even on the days when, when I didn't feel like doing it, I was doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure there were times when I overreached.
0: Did you have other goals as well, like uh this big goal that is you know so impactful? did you have other goals that you set yourself for motivation, or did you just hold on to the big one
1: it was It was really just the big one it was it was really the big one that that just kept me going you know but it's interesting because motivation and goals are um they're they're dynamic so it started off with just this big goal. But then when I started to see myself get faster, that became more motivating. And when I was no longer at the back of the group ride, but I was the one pulling the group ride like that, that was motivating, you know? And so I would have, the, I'm sure sure there were like micro goals that I would set for myself throughout. I mean, I probably couldn't even tell you what one of them is right now. But uh, well, I guess, you know what? I, I, I can, I can take that back. You know, like I had never ridden a century before that. And it was like, that was a goal. That was something I wanted to do. And that was, you know, that was a very cycling oriented goal was to ride a century. And uh, a a group of close friends of mine who I absolutely love dearly, um, they got together, planned a route, didn't tell me anything about it. They planned the route. And then they were like, hey, we're all going out. We're taking you on a century. It was my last ride before transplant. They were like, we're taking you because it'll be, I was off the bike for like three months after that. They were like, we're taking you, we're going to go do a century ride. So they helped me achieve that goal um, just by setting it all up. I, the fitness was there. But yeah, I mean, and there were, there were a bunch of micro goals, I would say, throughout the entire process like that that just kept me, kept me going. Um, I mean, it's not like it really needed much to help me keep going, but it was, they were nice things to, to meet.
0: How did you know that you were ready for transplant?
1: Uh, so I went through, I started all the testing in, um, I think it was April was there March or April um it's on on my instagram actually i'd have to scroll way back and find it but i i posted the very first blood draw actually i posted when i filled out the living donor application so you fill out an application then they start blood work um and then from there you have to i i had to go through a ton of physical tests you know blood work um you actually i had to go through a like an emotional and mental screening with a psychologist Um, Just because there's so much that goes into this because, you know, there are things you don't think about like they I had to talk to a psychologist about, well, how will you handle it mentally if let's say because there's a chance he could have gotten my kidney and it could have rejected immediately. And then I did all this work and I did all this to try to save his life. And then it was it would have could have been, quote unquote, for nothing. Um, They want to know how you handle that that kind of situation, which fortunately, that's not how it played out. But yeah, I mean, it's it's. Those are, those are things that have to be, you know, have to be thought about. But anyway, I got, you know, I went through all that. Um, and then finally, you know, we got the call. Um, hey, you're a match. Everything is approved. Everything, everything is perfect. And then they run one final test, literally like three days before transplant. Because like I said, you can be a match and become not a match, mm-hmm. unmatch, I guess. It's, it's really bizarre. Um, but they ran that one test three days before and they were like, we're good to go. Let's do this. Cool.
0: Well, this is what amount of stress before that last test, huh? <laughs> oh man, <I> can't imagine. <laughs>
1: the pressure, the pressure is unreal.
0: Yeah. yeah I can't imagine. So, uh, if first things first and most importantly, post post operation did, was it a success for Axe? and then what is Axe's condition like as a result of this? Uh, and I so, guess up to now.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, uh, it was a success for him. Um, there's always, like I said, there's always a chance that the kidney may not work. It could reject. I mean, there are a bunch of issues. So what's interesting is most people find this fascinating, but we had the operations at two different hospitals because he was at a children's hospital, and they don't, they don't operate on anyone 18 and over um, on very few circumstances. So there's an adult hospital a mile down the road, and that's where my surgeon was. That's where I was. I was there with my mom and then Axe and my wife were at the children's hospital. So they, they started the process at, um, at UT Southwestern in Dallas and took my kidney and then threw it in a nice chest, transferred it over. And then my surgeon stitched me all up and then he left, went to children's. So he was there for the final connections in Axe. They started my surgery an hour later, they started his um, which I think wow. is just it's yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. Like I said, most people find that pretty fascinating and I think it's really yeah. cool too. So um, but yeah, I mean, um, I don't remember a whole lot from that day. Obviously, I was I was pretty out of it. Um, but I do remember, you know, obviously when I when I first woke up, my mom was with me and my first question, have you heard from Corey? How was Axe? And and he was doing he was doing great. And I stayed in touch with her, you know, she sent me, I still remember. So, um, the whole three years after his kidneys completely failed, he didn't, he didn't pee. Like he didn't pee at all. Cause he he had nothing to make pee. So I still remember the picture, the first picture she sent me of, of, um, he was in a diaper and it was one of the ones that shows when he's wet. And I still, I mean, like that is a very emotional picture for me to see because it was like, Hey, this is working. This is working. And so my kidney was in him doing, doing its thing. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. and he snapped back. The doctors told me, um, his nephrologist, man, his nephrologist is, is one of the greatest human beings I've ever met in my life. So, um, shout out to Dr. Cycli at children's. I, I got to give much love to him, but he told me, uh, he said, I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to be a lot harder on you than it is on him. And I was, I was relieved to hear that because I wanted it to be my turn to take, to take the punishment for a while, you know, um, to give him a break. Uh, and it was like, he snapped, he snapped back so fast from the surgery. They, they anticipated he would be in the hospital for three weeks while they adjusted meds, made sure the kidney didn't reject, uh, fine tune everything. He was out of the hospital after like eight or nine days. Um, just because everything was just working so well. And I still remember laying on the couch at my mom's house, um, watching TV because I mean, I'm two weeks post transplant. It is hard to even walk at that point for me. And he's running around the ribbon living room, like a crazy kid. And I'm like, I just remember like just how amazing that felt to see him. Like it was the best he had felt in, you could just tell it was the best he had felt in, in years. Uh, and it was, it was amazing.
0: How cool must've felt incredible to know, like, you know, uh, to look back probably at all those moments of suffering that you had, they probably seemed like, well, of course I would have never quit. Right. They were probably yeah. minimized in terms of the suffering that you endured or their worth was probably magnified. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was, you know, it's, it's interesting. Cause when I think about um, the, one of the hardest things after transplant that, that I never anticipated was how hard it was going to be just to get out of the bed. And before I could even leave the hospital, they made me walk a lap around the floor. And, um, like they, they, so they, they cut open, they took the, the kidney from the front. Um, I know your kidneys are in the back, but they took it from the front. So they basically, they sliced through all my core muscles and you don't realize how much you use core muscles until they're not there, but even just to get out of bed. And when I think back on that, um, that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life was get up out of that bed and walk around that hospital floor and, one of the fascinating things to me about about trainer road and using trainer road um is is it just shows you how deep you can go when you think you can't you definitely still can and trainer road taught me that more than anything i've ever done in my life and during that time when i had to get out of bed and walk around the floor I, that's immediately where my brain went. My mind went to these, you know, um, over under VO two max intervals. And I, I mean, it sounds kind of, it almost sounds silly to say it out loud like that, but it's, it's seriously where my brain goes. It's like, Hey, there was this thing you did that was really, really hard, but you did it and this is no different. So um, to me, you know, it's, there's so much more, there's so much more to this type of training than just, hey, let's get stronger on bikes. Like that, that mental aspect was so huge for me. And it's why, like, you know, when, like you said, when I first shared this story, I shared it as how Trainer Road helps me save my son. And it was so much more to me than just getting in better shape. There was that, there was that mental, you know, that dig deep mentality that I didn't, I didn't realize how, how deep I could dig until I had to do it. And then I've used that. I've applied that in so many, so many areas of my life. And then the transplant, that was, that was, that was definitely a huge one for me.
0: So you mentioned it was like a three month recovery that you had. Yeah. And what was it, when did you get back on the bike? And then I'm sure that like, you know, as you mentioned, kind of your suffering had really just begun in a lot of yeah. ways, you know, it was time for, for Axe to take a break, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, Relatively speaking, and your suffering had just begun. when did you get back on the bike and what was the recovery like for that? So
1: I was off the bike. Um, I was cleared to ride, to get back on indoors only and very easy after, um, I think it was like six weeks. So six weeks, they were like nothing outside, you know, take it easy. So I, I literally just did like pet it. And not even pet it, not even that long, 30 minutes at a time. So like uh, like volunteer Dance. or something. Dan's or volunteer.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So just just really short rides. And oh man, that first ride, I was absolutely exhausted. 30 minutes, 30 minute recovery ride. And I was just, I was getting, my heart rate was probably 20 beats higher per minute than normal. But, mm. you know, looking back on it now, it's like, it's obvious my body was going through a lot there was a lot of work being done on the inside. Um, so my body was just working harder. So I did. And I stayed at that, that easy pace like that for probably at least a month. Um, I would extend up to maybe an hour, but that was, that was still it. Um, and I just, I didn't, uh, I didn't spend a whole lot of time doing much of anything until, until three months. And then after three months, they were like, you're, you're pretty much good to go now. All like my stitches, everything was healed. Um, my body, they said it would take a year for my single kidney to, it, it actually, it physically would increase in size to m- pick up the slack from where the other kidney was gone, um, which I thought was pretty fascinating. So um, they said it would take a year for that to happen. And I didn't really notice much of a difference after probably three or four months. I couldn't really even tell. And to this day, I have, I, I, I don't feel any different than I did before now. Hmm. So but yeah, so after after three months, I was able to start picking my training back up. And it was honestly, it was harder than starting for the first time, I think. Well, maybe, I don't know. I was pretty big when I started the first time. And that was, there were some <laughs> struggles there, but um, it snapped back pretty fast. But it was those those first, that first training block after after that three months was hard.
0: It was you rough. Mentioned, you mentioned some of the like, you know, kind of like longer term effects in terms of just having, you know, one kidney left. Did you have to make any change to your training or nutrition as a result of, uh, of that and as it stuck with you that changed yeah
1: yeah so i did actually i had to i had to talk to them about that and the main thing that they told me was to watch my protein intake so um, i have to watch my protein intake closely because that's broken down in the kidneys and with only one kidney if you take in too much protein i mean i guess it's true for even if you have two kidneys but if you eat too much protein, um, it actually, it, it, the kidneys can't keep up and it's long-term it's bad. It's bad for mm. the kidneys. So, um, that's really the main thing. They said everything else, uh, would be about the same. You know, they made sure that like when I'm out on the bike, cause I mean, it's, you know, I live right on the border of Texas and Arkansas and it gets, I mean, it's like, it's going to be like hundred degrees today. So it gets hot. So they're like, make sure you have electrolyte drink and you know, mm. stuff that I was doing already, but it's just like, that's just cemented. Uh, in my brain. And then, you know, other, other small things like I'm not supposed to take a leave or Advil or any NSAID, no aspirin, stuff like that. Um, so just, just little things like that. But other, other than those things, I didn't really have to change anything else. Uh, they did tell me they pushed, uh, I don't race and I've never really raced. I've done some gravel races and that's still something I enjoy doing. Um, I'm, I, I never really, I, I'm, I like to push. I'm more of a race with myself kind of person. Not necessarily like race, race for the podium kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, Just because I, I I'm very, very competitive, like aggressively. So, (laughs) and I don't, I I don't want to get to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, they did push me away from like, they're like, look, you you know, you don't race bikes. We don't really recommend you ever race bikes. Um, Especially crits. um, Just because the, it's not a huge possibility that my kidney could get damaged, but it's the, the, it's the option or the possibility is always there. If I were to go down, you know, something could do something to that one single kidney. So, but other than that,
0: nothing in terms of like riding bikes or training or anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. So you going back on the bike, uh, was your, was, and is your motivation still the same or what replaced that motivation after man that's that is an excellent question and it's
1: been one that I, I'll really be honest with you I've struggled with um because it's you reach there there's this goal you know you have this enormous goal and when you when you reach that pinnacle you hit the top of that mountain where do you go from there and it is it's hard to find motivation and it's hard to everything else compared to that goal is small. And it you have to put yourself in a new mindset. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a real struggle for me um, because I, I, I still loved riding bikes, obviously, and I still do to this day, but to have that motivation to go hard and to dig deep, there was more of an excuse, honestly, to let myself off the hook, to go, yeah, you don't have to do this today, it's not that big of a deal. And to, to find that motivation again, um, it was, it was a real challenge and I spent probably the best part of a year trying to figure out where it comes from after that. And I think the, the, the thing is like to this now, I still don't really have a good answer for that. Um, it's, you know, it's, It's about, it's just small things now. It's about being a better me. It's about being a stronger me. It's about living a longer, healthier life because Axe still has, uh, he still has a long road ahead of him. Um, For the rest of his life, this is going to be something he deals with because a kidney transplant is not, a kidney transplant is not a, um, it's, it's a Band-Aid more than it is a... It doesn't fix the original problem. There's a chance that his FSGS could come back and attack the new kidney. It's just it because it lives in his body. Um, and and at some point, I mean, transplanted kidneys, even from living donors, have they have a longer lifespan than ones from deceased donors. But at some point in his life, he's going to need another kidney. And I know that. And I can't give it to him, but I can be strong for him. And that's... Hmm. So yeah, I still draw on that. It's still... I want him, now it's more about, to me, it's about him seeing me work hard, you know, it's about him seeing me do what I do, it's like, hey, dad spends a lot of time on the bike, dad works out, he does this, you know, and I want that to be an inspiration to him, so I still, <clears throat> excuse me, I still draw on, on him for that motivation, because, but it took me a while to find that, you know, because it did, after everything just, everything seemed muted, after after the big that big event, you know, it was like, hey, we made it. Now what? Um, and everything seemed muted for a long time. And I really did struggle with that. So I'm I'm really glad you asked that because um, it is it is a struggle. And I think that anyone listening to this, uh, it, it's something that you need to be aware of. You know, it can be hard, but you can definitely find that motivation again.
0: Yeah, nobody has bulletproof motivations, and we shouldn't we shouldn't make ourselves feel like we should and we shouldn't assume that other people do, you know, it's, it's always, it ebbs and flows. You know, what you said there really resonates with me. and, And I think of that pretty regularly, uh, you know, and just looking at you with my son, I want my son to know that, you know, yeah, sure. Even though it's for silly little blue ribbons or not even that, you know, with bike racing, who knows, you may get like a tire lever or something. Right. But, um, but I want him to know that work, the hard work does pay off in the sense that it makes you uh, a better person, you know? And, and what I think of, when I think of your situation is you were training and fighting for your son to survive. And, and what you're doing now is fighting and training to teach your son how to live. Right. And, and it's just a a really noble, noble cause. Not saying that your son needs to become a cyclist that, that, you know, does over unders once a week, but saying that, you know, your son knows that, that his dad knows that hard work pays off and, and it's worth struggle and it's worth those sort of things, you know, yep. it's all this bike racing thing and training thing. It's all just a metaphor for the larger issue of life, right? That's, that's all a- absolutely. Really no, that, that is, that's
1: absolutely it. You know, and I, and, and uh, even to further that point, I want him to know that there is more to doing the hard work and riding bikes or whatever, whatever the sport is, there's more to it than just the sport. Because, like I said earlier, the things that I that I pulled from my training, especially during that first base phase, have been just paramount to so many parts of my life after it. And um, I mean, I want him to know that you know, yeah, things you struggle, things are things are struggled, but you are stronger than you realize. Which I mean, he probably he's eight now, and he probably doesn't realize how much stronger he is than he realizes. <laughs> But I mean, cause he's, he's literally the strongest person I know. I, I mean, just, just his draw, all the kids are all kids who deal with any sort of, any sort of just, we should all be in awe of kids who have to deal with things that adults struggle with because it is, they are absolutely, kids are amazing. They're amazing.
0: Yeah. You know, they, they lack that perspective that a lot of adults have and it's, but it's, it's got pluses and minuses, Yeah, you know, because they can march right through. And a lot of the time, you know, we may overthink things or try to justify things and, and change it around, but their, um, their earnestness and their, their, their pureness of heart is inspiring for sure. Agreed. Cam, yep. Cam, you're a successful athlete. One of the most successful athletes I've ever met, uh, because what you've accomplished is, is sustaining life and, and what an incredible thing. If you were to share one thing with, uh, and sorry, I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you were to share one thing that you've learned from your training experience, with other people that may be struggling with motivation or maybe not, who knows? What would you share with them? Man, I, honestly, it's
1: never give up. I know it's cliche and it sounds corny and, and I get that. But I mean, honestly, it's, it's just, that's what it is. Don't give up, don't give up. You, you've got, you, you have everything that it takes to be successful regardless of what that success means for you. And do it, just fight. I mean, like I said, you you learn so much more about yourself um, by burying yourself into this kind of stuff.
0: And and that, uh, it's huge, it's huge absolutely awesome cam thanks so much if if anybody wants to find out more about this episode talk to cam he's always on the trainer road forum too uh so he's present there you can go to the, the trainer road forum which is trainerroadcom slash forum or you can just search for it on google and find it that way and you can look for episode four of the successful athletes podcast with cameron Summerson, and you'll be able to see all the information from this one and and ask any questions you might have. Uh, this is an awesome podcast. I'm so motivated to train. I I can't wait to go do it right now. Um, and I want to, I want to, I want to spend time with my son and let him know how much he means to me too. So this is just awesome. Thanks, Cam. Appreciate it. And, uh, if you enjoyed this one, please let us know down below, give us a thumbs up if you're watching the YouTube video and please share it with other people. So then other people can become inspired and become faster cyclists too, and just better human beings overall. So thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.